Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. To be human is to be anxious. To be human is to be stressed. No matter what we do, no matter how old we are, no matter where we are or who we are with, we are going to experience some form of anxiety, fear, worry, or stress. This is Dr. Z, and I am back with another episode of the Planet Safe podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Today, I want to share an interview with Dr. Mark Hoffman. Dr. Mark Hoffman is a board-certified emergency medicine physician who has been practicing for over 20 years. I don't know if you or your relatives or your significant others or your friends needed to go to the emergency room in a hospital. But when you go to the emergency room, you will see a bunch of doctors that are usually juggling multiple tasks because they have maybe six to 10 patients to see at the same time. So they have to make sure that everyone is okay. They have to pay attention to the well-being of multiple clients and they have to assess who they start treating first. How do they do it? How do they make the decision? How do they manage the stress? In this interview, I asked Dr. Hoffman all those questions because I am very curious how we manage these fear-based situations in our day-to-day life. I hope you find the interview helpful. This 36-minute interview will give you some insights on how to make decisions how doctors who are exposed to high stressful situations make decisions. Perhaps you are already familiar with these skills. Perhaps these skills are new. Or perhaps you need a reminder on how to manage stressful situations. This podcast is not a replacement for therapy or coaching. This podcast gives you information for you to consider in how you manage anxiety, fears, and worries in your day-to-day life. I wish you a great week and thanks for listening. One of the things that I'm trying to do in the podcast is to understand better how people navigate worries, stressors in their day-to-day life. Sometimes people think that only people that are in therapy are dealing with anxiety. But my take is that every human being, every day we wake up, we are exposed to worries, fears, anxieties, all types of uncomfortable experiences. 
And I would love to hear for you as an MD practicing in the emergency department in a hospital. How do you handle that? What's stressful for you when you are going to work? Well, you know, in emergency medicine, you always have to keep track of like 20, 30 things at a time. You, you have a screen, a board with sometimes 10 or 20, 20 patients that you're actually taking care of at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that I'm good at. That That's easy for me because I've been doing that for all, like 40 years, the same thing over and over. And, you know, two code blues could come in at the same time and, and I can still manage that. I just because I'm used to that. I'm practice. It's everyday thing. Mm-hmm. The thing that, that I'm most anxious is the unexpected thing. The, mm-hmm. Generally, it's not a medical thing. It's more like a political thing, like a, a patient is very upset or a nurse is very upset with me or or a tech or, or something like that. And then you're right in the middle of, you have 20 things going on at the same time. And now you've got this sudden stress, which I, just consumes you. And you have to get over that somehow because you're not going to be able to function taking care of the other 20 things if you, you know, dwell on that. And uh, sometimes you just have to just walk out of the emergency department, just take a couple of deep breaths and just realize that you're overreacting to something. I think that that's what I've done recently in, in some of those situations, like a, a patient recently told me that I was the worst doctor in the world. Oh. For no good reason. I mean, but anyway, that was the situation. And all the nurses backed me up and were trying to reassure me. But still, I took it so personally because I, I take that stuff really, really seriously. And there was just no way to, to, to solve that person upset about something and they're needing some kind of attention that I somehow couldn't give them and, and whatever. But like I said, that for me, that's the most stressful thing when these things just pop up out of nowhere and you're already in the middle of 20 things and then you have to deal with this extremely stressful situation. Well, I am sorry to hear that you encountered that situation and I can see that the nature of what you're doing can be very stressful. You are juggling many things at the same time and you feel comfortable with that type of stress, but you're used to it, yeah. But the new unexpected stressors, that's what is, it's really upsetting. If I can step back a little bit, if we can go back on time to 30 years ago, how was for you, maybe your first year when you started working in emergency medicine and you didn't have much experience and there you are with all these 20, 25 patients coming to you at once. How did you handle that then? I, I don't know whether I, I, I did anything different back then. You know, coming out of my residency, I was just really confident. I thought I knew everything because I was working in a county type institution, but they didn't give me any skills on how to deal with politics or bedside manner or any of that stuff. I kind of just had to learn that on the job as I went. And so anytime of like those same political things that I'm talking about now were the same things that stressed me out then and, and gave me the most difficulty. Uh, the, the very first job that, that I had uh, only lasted a few weeks. I, uh, I, I, wor- I uh, w- worked for about two months in this mm-hmm. really intense emergency department out in Palm, or, uh, out in, uh, Palm Desert, mm-hmm. Eisenhower Medical Center. And uh, then uh, I had already went, I went on vacation for three weeks with my wife. And I came back and, and I didn't have a job. And oh. I understand this is this is the nature of emergency medicine where everything you're in a fishbowl, everything is just completely watched by all the administrators, the boss, all the nurses, this, that, and everything. And I've noticed this with all these new doctors that come in down, down, 
they're under these same stresses. They're totally, totally over, over managed and over watched and, and uh, it becomes really intense and stressful for the new doctor because everything you do is just managed and, and watched. And I, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. I came back and there were all these things that unexpected complaints. I had no idea the doctors were misusing me and telling me to do this and do that. And then the other doctor would say, oh, no, you were wrong. And I should have done this and that. And, and I thought I knew how to do everything right. But yet I was in a political situation where they had different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And it just totally hit me by a, you know, just smashed you know, in the face, unexpected. And as a result of that, I've always been extremely sensitive to these political situations ever since then. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up with a job at the Sistering Hospital, where I ended up with tw- working there for 22 years. Wow. Until a, a similar situation came up, but that was another story altogether. That was yeah. really an individual a fight with an individual doctor that led to the demise of that job after 22 years. Oh, my and goodness. The same partnership that I'm in put me in a better job. So that was like, you know, just going from one bad thing to a good thing. And that's so job been 13 years now I've been at the same working for the same partnership uh, I that see. I was 22 years I see. before but that sounds very stressful to be dealing with politics at work and I think exactly. in in every large organization you have also these dynamics of power who is above who who manages who who has the last word who has the last saying and with all these experiences, and again, I'm sorry that that's what you have to encounter right away. How did you learn to manage that? Well, the best thing for me is just to keep my mouth shut. Okay, okay. Uh, because generally, once these, once you get into a situation which is negative, if you just keep going at it, it, it really never turns out. It always just turns out negatively. Okay. So sometimes it's just best to end the interaction, whatever it is, and then either just listen or just start over again with that situation. Listening sounds very easy to do, but it's also hard because we do get emotionally invested. And many times we care about the things that are part of the discussion. And sometimes we may have urges to say something, to argue back, to defend ourselves, to prove people wrong. How did you handle those urges? That's the hardest thing for me is because even when I agree with a person, I can always, I always tell something. I always give an opposite argument. There's another <laughs> point of view because there are almost two important points of view in every topic. Yes. When, I, when I teach all these residents and young doctors, I always give them more than one opinion to let them decide for themselves. I know that there's more than one side. There's more than one way to treat literally every problem. That's true. So, That's true. Okay. So I hear, okay, so we learn to listen or restart the situation. And what did you mean by that? How will you restart a situation? Taking a break, thinking about things, trying to calm yourself down, and then go back to the situation and start it over again or resume it and try and, you know, make something better of it. I see. Uh, And also, like, a lot of times when I'm, like, talking to my boss, generally who's usually 20 or 30 years younger than me nowadays, uh, (laughs) I have to just mostly keep my mouth shut. Okay. <laughs> like I said, I can argue with anything and I will argue with anything. And that's my nature in normal situations is to, because I have a mind that just keeps going and just has all these thoughts that no one else even thinks of a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I just have to say it. But mm-hmm. uh, like I said, the best thing for me is just to keep shut and then maybe say it later if it still makes sense. 
but give I, it some time to think. That's my biggest problem is like saying, saying things quickly without thinking them over more. more. Well, it's hard. It's hard when you walk in life with a dynamic mind that is constantly analyzing and thinking about possibilities. And also the nature of practicing medicine from a scientific standpoint, it's really to hold hypothesis, to hold a coexistence of things that may look very argumentative because that's how science evolves. So I, I gather how that's by nature where your mind goes. Given that that's one of the things you have learned to wait and state your opinion later on if something makes sense, in the waiting time, what do you do to manage your dynamic mind? Because the mind keeps going on and on, blah, 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 yup, yup, yup. So how do you manage that waiting time? Well, uh, there's always something to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, doing the, the everyday stuff with your fingers, you know, clicking this and that. And then, and while you're thinking, you know, uh, about the, the thing that's consuming your mind or the thing that you're ruminating about, yes. while still functioning, you know, with your fingers at the computer and putting orders in and maybe even writing charts or, or whatever else. Because there's lots of stuff to do in emergency medicine. I mean, you just like, in, there must be 10,000 tasks in one 10 hour shift. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. That's just how much stuff you've got to do. So sometimes you can do that to take your mind off it. Like I said, when the worst situations, it's best to just go and go in the back room and just be by yourself for a minute or two. And and uh, I don't know what I think about them, but just trying to calm down, just trying. Another thing I, I realize, I understand that emotions are just physical things. Mm-hmm. You get an emotion. I realize that. And I realize it's just a physiological sense in my body. And I try and say, oh, well, that's just, you know, a stomach ache or whatever. It's not because I'm really upset. It'll go away if I just relax. And I realize mm-hmm. that your emotions will just go away if you just take a brief breath and relax, no matter what it is, whether it's good or bad. True. Or bad. That is true. If we just watch emotions coming and going like waves in the ocean, they don't last forever. Right. But reaching that place is really hard. I know that for me, sometimes if I see a document that has different types of font, I do not understand why someone will send that. Or a couple of months ago, I was working on my website and I couldn't figure out where to put a period. So for three hours, I was trying to make sure that the period is at the end of the sentence and not three spaces after the end of the sentence. When I try to cool down myself, my mind keeps going on. My mind takes me into this rumination. I start wondering why this is happening. This shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't have said yes to this. And it's hard to disentangle from that. If these days you find yourself dealing with some ruminative thoughts, what will you do with them? Anything that has worked for you. Well, what works for me is thinking about the fact that, hey, I'm highly successful what I've done. Ah. Senior partner in this huge, powerful corporation. And yeah, they're complaining about me, or yeah, there's some problem, but they must like me as an employee. They kept me around this long, and, and I'm nearly impossible to fire because I'm a senior partner in the situation. <laughs> so the fears that I developed from way back are really irrational. They're not, yeah. if they're having a complaint, it's just, they're trying to improve my behavior. They're not really doing that to try to get rid of me or fire me. That's what I have to realize because that's what I'm so, that's what makes me so anxious and nervous is always worried about being fired, but that's, 
even uh-huh. less now because there's an extreme shortage of doctors in the area where where uh, I work. They, they've got me working 50% more hours now. Wow. Because they can't get enough doctors to go work in the Central Valley. I see, I see. Isn't that interesting what the mind does? You're very successful having practicing for over 30 years. Um, I think 34, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. And when you encounter these unexpected stressors, like uh, patients complained, even though it's part of the game of working with the public, your mind takes them into, what if I get fired? Isn't that interesting that the mind will go quickly into this gloom, gloom scenario? There, there have been, I've seen many, many, many other good doctors fired. You know, I see. In fact, all of the doctors that are in my age group at my current group yeah. are gone now. Oh, I'm so fired sorry for that. Now it's all young doctors. And uh, so, you know, so a lot of doctors do get fired. But most of those doctors are way, way less competent than myself and probably <laughs> had good reasons to be fired. I see. I see. Okay. Is it possible that you will get fired? Yes. Is it possible that I will get fired? Absolutely, yes. But I think at some point we have to make a decision. Do I live based on possibilities or do I live based on what is in front of me? Now, for me, I try to bring myself back to the present, right? Focusing on what is in front of me, what I hear, what I see, what I smell, and try to keep moving with my day. How do you navigate that for you? There are possibilities and there is life happening in front of you now. Well, first of all, just I just, just have to remember to be in my best behavior. Because when I'm on my best behavior, I'm very good. And, and I'm also, I can help a lot in mm-hmm. the stress of the whole place. Because mm-hmm. I can see more patients more quickly than any other people. I can get the nurses more relaxed. I, I, I just have, have to have confidence in myself and just be myself. Mm-hmm. You know, not worry about the mistakes so much. So that they can happen. They're going to happen. Yeah. And just worry about what I can do to help everyone. Mm-hmm. I can do a lot. I mean... When, when, when I arrive at work and there's 20 patients to be seen that, that are waiting or whatever, there's nobody faster and more efficient at getting them all taken care of somehow than I am. That's beautiful. I just have to be confident and just I understand that those people, like most of the people I work with do appreciate that. And in fact, you know, I mean, I got a brand new boss now and uh, I really like her a lot because she's actually smarter than all the other bosses I work with because she's trained at Stanford. Oh, yeah, I can really work with that's somebody I can argue with and, and have, <laughs> get a good argument back. And she can understand both points of view, too. That's so, beautiful. The fact that I have a really intelligent. She's only she's young as my daughter, but she's like really smart. So I really I, like that. I see. Well, if your mind is a dynamic mind, again, it's nice to have another person that can entertain that. Yeah, a yeah. person that is not going to quiet down different opinions that will actually dance with that. Right. Yeah. No, all the boss. The last four bosses I've had have all been very good. Mm-hmm. Which one of the ones who was the best, he actually got fired too for a political reason. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, he's he's still working at the sister site, but he got fired as the director ah. because of this thing called sepsis, because our numerics, our metrics weren't where they were supposed to be, and now they're at the best. We're the best in the in the region, but uh, it, it took a lot of work to get there. Can we talk a little bit about that? I did my internship and my postdoc in a hospital setting. 
And I am familiar with the metrics, the productivity, the ratios of clients or patients that you're supposed to see on a given month, the numbers of the whole department. And I remember that every weekly meeting we had, we didn't go one weekly meeting talking about those numbers, whether that was the whole meeting or whether that was 10 minutes, but every meeting is about the productivity of the department. And I'm curious, how do you navigate to that today, given that we have a medical system that it's completely saturated and there are not enough researches for the number of patients or the number of people that live in this country? Uh, well, I don't know. Our, the, my organization, Vituity, has always been about metrics, you know, ah. service metrics, patient productivity metrics, uh, you know, pays partly based on the productivity in, in some ways. So, yeah, they are absolutely all about metrics. And the sepsis thing was another big thing that was all about metrics, like checking, doing certain things to, to reduce mortality in this thing. And it's been a national thing. And, you know, it's the government, of course, being involved makes everything like not so not as scientific as it should be. And, uh, <laughs> because at our hospital, the sepsis mortality was 40 percent mm-hmm. and the national average is 20 percent. Oh, wow. When I was an intern, my average was 0%. But that's wow. Crazy. And, uh, you know, I just the way I do things, critical. If, if you almost people can't even remember, like people come in with cardiac arrest all the time, about 5 or 10% to get them back. I always get the heartbeat back almost like 98% of the time. Patients wow. yeah, will usually will die anyway. But like I said, I have skills that just make me very good. So the metrics, my metrics always show up good on the, especially medical metrics and, and all those kind of things. So everything's about metrics, but like I said, as long as you keep yourself, as long as you're not an outlier, you're good, you know, high or low or whatever number of patients per hour or whatever, you know, that that's the important thing is metrics are just to help find people that are like not doing things right. So the dealing with metric is not an stressful for you because of your medical performance. Right. They're actually quite high given all your skills. Now, can we chat a little bit about that? One of the characteristics of emergency medicine is that speed in which things move. Everything moves really fast. You have one patient after another one with acute presentations. And given your expertise and given your experience, you seem very comfortable with that. How did you reach that place in which you can fully trust your competence? And do you ever have some doubtful thoughts? I had successful metrics even way, way, way back. And even even way back in my residency, like I said, my percentages and wherever were like, if you, if they had measured them, they would, they weren't measuring metrics so much then. But my, you know, my success rates were always extremely high in whatever metric that you measured, especially with medical situations, med- you know, mortality outcomes and, and stuff like that. And uh, I was always taught a very aggressive approach for the most critical care situations. And I was also taught by uh, a, a guy that edited the textbook of critical care medicine and, and had all these ideas and thoughts which were considered like revolutionary and reactionary at the time, but now are accepted as just everyday practice. Mm-hmm. I had a kind, of, kind of arrived at all those same thoughts myself, just from my knowledge of physiology. I was like number one in the class at Northwestern in physiology. Wow. And I was I got honors in physiology in medical school. And I always applied that to ICU situations. And that's where I just, I, as an intern, I had extremely high success rates. Mm-hmm. 
always continued on through that because I take a very aggressive approach. I have very skilled, like if I have a laryngoscope blade in my hand, the old fashioned one, that patient is going to have a, a tube in there to breathe them in 10 seconds. Wow. The doctors are running around with these little fancy machines. It might take them several minutes to, to do what takes me 10 seconds. I see. That's impressive. The same way with all the other things that you need to get a, a patient resuscitated in the most critical situation. That's why two code blues at once, most doctors would just be pulling their hair out, wouldn't know what to do. Whereas to me, oh, boom, 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 boom. You know, patients are both doing okay now, at least for a while. But, you know, that situation, you know, I can handle it because uh, just a lot of experience, a lot of practice just from the very beginning. I remember even when I was a resident at Martin Luther King, the four patients at once all went on ventilators within an hour. And I was just taking care of all four patients just completely by myself. Hardly wow. help from the nurses because there was a shortage of nurses. I put IVs in myself. I drew medications, everything. So just that experience way back at Martin Luther King in LA, just the madhouse that that was, uh, prepared me for all the most critical and stressful situations of the emergency department itself. Wow. Killer wow. King was known as Killer King back then. And they we're very proud that we had more gunshot wounds to the chest in one year than they did for the entire Vietnam War. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's an incredible frame of reference. Wow. That sounds really impressive. Can I ask a little bit more? Um, it seems that one of the principles has been to approach an aggressive level of care to people who are in extreme acute situations. What has been the most complicated medical situation you have encountered and how do you navigate that? Well, uh, there were six gunshot wounds that came in at once. Wow. In Palm Springs, which is a trauma center. Mm-hmm. And most people would freak out about that because I was the only doctor there. But I did have a good trauma surgeons to call. And three of them had gunshot wounds to the abdomen. Uh, there was a symptom to the OR. But the thing is, once again, because of the previous experience, I was used to it. I was, okay, six chunks. Okay, I'm just going to do my skills. I got plenty of good nurses that, that, you know, to do what they need to do. I'll just tell each one what to do, do each thing that I need to do. And all, all six gunshot wounds all survived. They all came out fine. Um, three of them turned out they weren't as serious, you know, just through and through the legs or arms or whatever. And three of them were critical, but I, like I said, I did everything like that. I remember that. And then there was also the, the Girl Scout bus accident, which was 26 victims, six dead. But in that case, I only had to take care of four critical patients. And uh, I wasn't on my day off. And uh, I spent two hours sewing up a girl's face, putting almost like 100 stitches in there. Wow. If I were next to you in the emergency room and someone says, we have six people with gunshots, what will I see you doing in your mind? Will you list all the steps that you have to do? Will you coach yourself? How do you go into decision and execution of what needs to be done? I, I, I don't need to do anything. Ah. Because I just, it's, it's only one decision at a time. Mm-hmm. No matter how many people it is. So I just get myself ready to, to a mode where I can make decisions quickly and not waste time with things that aren't important. And okay. if we know ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, that's what you got to focus on first. Keep the person alive. Everything else you can take time for. You know, mm-hmm. you think about, oh, if there's a hole in the arm or whatever, or well, something's a cut, but they're not bleeding to death, we'll figure that out later. So yeah, it's triage in your mind, but it, it happens as the situation goes. I don't 
start thinking everything because I already know what to do for each situation. I just have to get to each situation fastly, make a decision, then move on to the next one while still keeping track of everything else that's going on. I see. This is beautiful in terms of how you make decisions. One thing at a time, focus on what is important to keep the person alive and then move to the next. While in the back of your mind, you are ready to get one person you need to monitor. Another thing that you mentioned in one of our exchanges is that, and I love this reference, you say, I am like Michael Jordan when it comes to clinical practice, which I absolutely love. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And I love this frame of reference with Michael Jordan. Well, I, no, I, uh, the, uh, I already kind of explained how I do things quickly to answering. I think I've kind of already answered the question somewhat. But the, the Michael Jordan came, came from this. I, we always do these um, brigades in Central America, you know, to help the poor people. My daughter, you know, every summer we were going down there for a week and, and doing all this stuff. And one of the students who was giving explanations he had never seen me practice before, but he'd seen me. What I was like seeing like 110 patients every day, and every single one of them, I shook their hands, I smiled at, I did a professional bedside manner to, I gave them anywhere between five and nine prescriptions, and you know he'd never, you know they they've you know they've seen doctors practice before, but they never seen anyone like that, and he was giving explanations of all the people that came on the brigade. And he explained me as the Michael Jordan of ER doctor. I love it. I love this story. That's a beautiful story. Let me switch gears a little bit. As you were saying at the beginning, what is hard for you is not the stress related to your medical duties. It's the stress that is unexpected, like a patient complaint. And how do you handle that? Well, like I said, more it's just the anxiety and fear. Like, for example, if someone else has a patient complaint and the patient's still there and they want me to try to help out, if the situation can be restored, I will try and restore it for them. And I can put on the Marcus Welby, you know, face and try and say, you know, go to another person who's had a bad interaction with another doctor and try and restore it and and make them really happy. And I've done that many, many times. That, that, you know, that's another skill that I have. For restoring my own situations, they're harder. Sometimes another doctor has to come and help you. That's another thing too, is like, if you're working with another doctor and you run into a bad situation, a patient, you just can't, you know, you can let the other doctor help out. I see. I see. And they help me, we help each other and we help each other restore these difficult situations. Well, it's nice that you can have someone that you can trust who can support you in this difficult situation. When you receive a patient complaint and your mind goes into this place of anxiety or fear, how do you experience that? What does your mind tell you? Your heart's racing fast and getting nauseated or your stomach is aching. <laughs> like I said, you know those are physiological things. Yeah. So you know if you just do nothing or relax, you know they're just going to go away. Okay. What I do with my mind. I mean, I just, like I said, with my mind, I have to just tell myself, hey, I know what I'm doing. Like, you know, 99 million people love me and just one or two people don't love me. So that's what I got to think about. I see. So you actually do some self-coaching. You coach yourself how to handle that moment. And you start listing other variables of the context. And if you have a thought that says, but what if I get fired? What if I come back to work tomorrow and there is a letter that says I got fired? How would you handle that? Just for curiosity. Well, I would say maybe it's time to retire if that happened now. 
Okay. There's this really nice free clinic that I used to volunteer for right down the block here, and I'll be happy to go work for them. I see. They were like the people in Central America, and they would appreciate me a lot. How is for you when people don't appreciate that you are working hard, that you are giving your best, that you are talented and competent, and yet they have different experiences that don't appreciate who you are as a doctor? Well, you know, something, I, I don't blame them because, you know, there, whoever you are, there's situations that people aren't going to like, you're not going to interact. And, and, and usually I'm culpable too in any of these situations, you know, they're, you know, even the, the where I think I did everything professionally and definitely right, I could have done something different or better. So I just use it as a way to, how can I, if I get a situation like that, how can I manage it better the next time? I, I take it seriously. Like I said, every complaint, I don't just say it's 100% them. Yeah, I may have given them a nice you know, a professional you know, treatment, but I can still understand that they had, could have a good reason to, to be upset about it for whatever reason. And I understand that they're, they're legitimate. I mean, mm -hmm. I did something that made them upset. It wasn't, you know, it didn't just come out of the blue. Mm -hmm. There's something I can think about to try to make better. Well, that's very thoughtful of you because sometimes when we are in those situations in which people have a negative experience with us or a negative encounter, we can manage our distress by blaming the situation or by focusing why people have wronged us. And it's human. It's human that sometimes our mind may do that. And there is a lot of self-reflection and learning that happens when we sit back and check, okay, what did I do? What did I say here? And what can I do differently or better this time? That's very, very thoughtful of you. How did you learn to do that? Well, I just it seems to make sense to me that, you know, you know, if you made somebody upset, there could have been a different way that you could have done it, you know, if you had to do it over and it wouldn't have happened. And what about those times in which there's nothing different that we could have done? We look back at a situation and say, I did my best. I handled it to the best I could. I don't know if I ever say that. I mean, I, like I said, medically... Everyone's going to survive. I, I handle that part of it fine. Politics, <laughs> I may not have handled that so fine. So I'm always blaming myself if there is a, a complaint politically that there's something different I could have said or done. I see. But medically, it's very different. Your sense of competence is different than how we handle these political stressors. There are no cases pending against me medically legally. Yes. More than 10 years. I see. But I must be doing something right. Of course. Um, anything else that you have found helpful to manage the stress that comes with these unexpected stressors? Well, I think um, from having to deal with other people's complaints and having to rectify them, I always see, you know, something I've been in that situation before. It's universal. It isn't just me. Everybody's the same. We all run into that. I understand there. everybody else gets those same exact complaints and I understand where they come from. And we can all just do better. Mm -hmm. Most of the time I do better. I, I get more than twice as many positive comments than any other doctor, even though I also get a few more negative complaints. <laughs> from time to time. From time, time. Because like I said, the aggressive, energetic personality creates a lot of goodness. A lot of people just love that. Most people just, that's what they want. If you're in, a, if you're in an emergency room, you know, and you're worried about dying or serious, serious problems. You want an aggressive doctor who says, yeah, everything's going to be okay. We're going to take care of this, that, and everything and whatever. So yeah. the good stuff, it pretty much outweighs the bad. That I got to keep a mind on that. 
I am still very, very impressed um, of how you navigate these medical situations, how you decide what needs to be done first, because they can be so stressful. And I know for people who don't have as much experience as you do, may doubt themselves. They may wonder if they run enough medical tests, if they use the right medication. I know you have a lot of experience. I imagine that you can have your eyes closed and then you will perform still at your best and with an excellent rate. But I'm curious, how did you learn that? Because it can be hard for new doctors or people that don't have as much experience as you do. Well, I I think everybody has to just use whatever skills they have. And then Mm. there's things that help you. I mean, you have computers, you have charts. Sometimes I take notes and sometimes I don't take notes. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I have scribes take notes for me. Uh, just use all the, the the help you can get, whatever help that's there. there. There is a lot of help. You don't have to. It's not like in that situation where I got four patients on ventilators and I have to do everything myself. We have lots of help. We have nurses all over the place. We have other doctors. We have assistants, consultants. And just let everyone do their job and help out. I think then then you don't have to do as much and you're not as stressed. I so see. I just... You have to, you know, you can't just know all this. You have to learn it as you go. Yeah. I am very interested in how we navigate the different types of thoughts that our mind comes up with when we are getting stressed and you're working in a highly stressful environment, but you navigate to that. You swim naturally on that. And my take is that even though this is second nature now and you had a lot of practice, you do prioritize the decisions. You're doing this mental health triage, as you were saying at some point. And I find that very, very interesting. So I have my last question. If you were to have a chance to have a cup of coffee or a beer or a scotch with any person you want to spend time with today, who would that be and why? Um, you know, somehow you just... Uh... I don't know, Vladimir Putin just popped up in my mind. Okay, can you tell me a little bit more about it? Well, I don't know, because I'd like to to understand why why he's really doing what he's doing. See Mm -hmm. if I can rectify his his situation. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. But if it was a person I just wanted to have fun with, I I would say it would be Wilt Chamberlain, famous basketball player that came from Philadelphia. My dad used to admire him as a child because they went to high school in the same area. And uh, he is... uh, He's one of the top basketball players of all time. He was a person that had skills to do anything. Kinds of skills. Like after he did basketball, he went to professional boxing and did all these different different interesting things. He he didn't even start with basketball. He was just a runner and a sprinter. Run and sprint faster than anyone else. So then they said, hey, why don't you play basketball? Because he's seven feet tall. Mark, thank you so much for chatting with me. I am very, very appreciative. And please know that while the medical system is very stressful, it's so refreshing to meet a a physician who is very passionate and eager to help people and to show up to them in the most acute medical situations. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!